today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 20. David and Jonathan's friendship is put to the test as Jonathan's father, King Saul, becomes increasingly jealous of David's popularity and success. Jonathan helps David escape Saul's wrath by devising a plan for David to stay away from the royal court during the upcoming festival. Despite all the danger, Jonathan remains loyal to David and their bond of friendship grows stronger. Good morning and blessed Easter tide. Today is Thursday, May 25th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for our sponsor, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. They provide Lutheran resources in various languages to help ministries around the world, Visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and to see how you can get involved. That's at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to the program. Here to discuss 1 Samuel chapter 20 is the Reverend Christopher Morandi, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Hastings, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland, Iowa. Pastor Morandi, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be with you. I say welcome back because you've been on the program before, but this is the first time that you've been on with me, so maybe it would be a good idea, as I like to invite folks to do, just share a little bit about yourself and how God is working through you and the ministries that you have there in Iowa. Uh, just you know, anything that you might think would be uh, interesting to the listeners at home to get to know you a little better. Okay. Well, I, I, I'm very joyful and glad to be serving the saints at uh, St. John's and St. Paul's, two, uh, uh, two smaller rural congregations uh, here in western Iowa, back in Iowa West. That was where I first served when I was out of the seminary. I'm also a PhD candidate at uh, Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne. I'm studying the book of Psalms, uh, so the Old Testament and then the, the Psalter uh, specifically. Um and uh, I, I'm coming to you from our farm actually because I'm a I'm I serve those two parishes and I also uh, help my father-in-law on the farm, uh, my wife's uh, my wife's family farm, and I am the director of the Lutheran Institute of Regenerative Agriculture, which is a ag project we have out here to eventually uh, bring students, uh, young people of the church out here to learn how to grow and raise their own food. So I'm. I'm I'm wearing a lot of hats uh, here in my life right now. And the other hat is a uh, husband of Bethany, and uh, father of Samantha, Rachel, and Charlotte. So it's a, it's a great joy to be with this uh, with this audience again. It's always a joy to be on Thy Strong Word. Wow, very interesting. Uh, among all the interesting things, it seems like you're doing, which is great, as you said, keeps you busy. Um, yes, I I guess I perked up at the Lutheran Institute of Regenerative Agriculture. Uh, I guess just maybe another 60 seconds or so, share with us a little bit about what that exactly is. Yeah, um, I, I'd invite folks to check out our website. It's lutheransinag.org, all one word, lutheransinag.org. Uh, what we're establishing here in the in the hills of southwest Iowa is a, is a farm that is going to be kind of a, a lab, so to speak, uh, to bring in uh, young people of the church, uh, college students, maybe kids that are before college, maybe kids right after college, those in the summer, those who have come out for a full year apprenticeship. And the, the goal is to teach them small scale, um, farm to table, if that's a term people are familiar with, uh, small scale agriculture. And it's the kind of agriculture that they can use to grow food in, in their backyard, if they are blessed to have an acre, 10 acres, 35 acres, or more to feed their own families and to feed their communities and their congregations. So we're, we're, trying, we're trying to equip the young people of the church uh, with the skills to, to provide uh, for both themselves, their families, and their, and their communities. And, so, and in addition to that, because of the, the academic credentials that the Lord has blessed me with, uh, in addition to the agricultural component, we're actually going to be also doing some classical education. So I'll be teaching courses in theology. I'll be teaching courses in the arts, in literature, and history, 
um, uh, the scriptures, of course, and um, and potentially if those if if people want it or need it, uh, Latin and even German. I'm actually doing German with uh, with our first apprentice uh, summer worker, summer apprentice this this coming summer. So. Uh, we're incorporating, I, I like to say it's classical agriculture and classical education uh, molded together. And we're really, really pumped about the future of our project here and what, what the Lord is going to do here. And a lot of folks around our synod are very excited about it. And uh, I'd encourage the listeners, if you want to learn more, go to, go to the website, www.lutheransinag.org. Oh, that's great, and great information, too. I'm already on the website, so I'm, I'm checking it out myself. <laughs> uh, yeah, I encourage people to head to that. Uh, you know, where I'm at currently, which is in southwest Minnesota here, um, I have a, a, lots of farmers who are parishioners, but I have one or two who are actually um, specialize in that, regener- that concept of regenerative agriculture, and I think that's why it stood out to me. I'm definitely going to, if they're not already uh, familiar with you, I'm going to pass uh, your information on. They might be interested in uh, learning more about what you do. Awesome. But today, the task at hand is chapter 20 of 1 Samuel. Uh, we are a little bit into uh, King Saul's kingship, and, well, we're already starting to see some of the negative things that Samuel said would come to pass. In focus here, though, is David and his relationship with Jonathan, the son of the king. We know that David, of course, has already been uh, consecrated to be the king of Israel. And, of course, his, his uh, I, I would say his exploits, so to speak, are already become renowned throughout the, throughout the kingdom. And, well, Saul is a jealous man, and that's at least at part why Saul is not uh, exactly on good terms with David. But regardless, what we learn today is going to be uh, another interesting way in which God is going to touch our lives. But brother, I think it might be a good idea before we dive into any of the text or anything to begin together in prayer. And I invite you to lead that prayer. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, your ancestor according to the flesh, King David, he was one who was persecuted, who was rightfully anointed king, but yet felt great opposition throughout his life, foreshadowing the work that you would do. For you came as our king. You were anointed at the Jordan River, and you went forth and were opposed and were persecuted, even unto death, fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah, fulfilling David's own prophecies in the book of Psalms. We ask you, O Lord, that you would be with us as we we study Israel's great king, who is only great insofar as he pointed to you. We ask that you would bless our time together in your word, that we would always receive nourishment from that great spring. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last time we were together, we discussed, well, Saul trying to kill David. Uh, Before we dive into the context for today, Maybe set the stage, share a little bit of background information about what's been going on in case people haven't been able to tune in over the past few episodes, and so that they'll better understand what's happening today. Yeah, it's uh, I, I was reflecting as I was preparing for today how other than Jesus himself, and I, I, it actually might be if you count up the verses, we probably have more data on the life of David than of any other biblical character. Uh, and we have chapters and chapters of his life uh, recorded for us. And, and chapter 20 of 1 Samuel is a really an important hinge in that kind of early adulthood life of, Jesus, uh, life of David, uh, in that David's been in the service of Saul, and chapter 20 is kind of when that service ends. And uh, he, the, finally, the tensions between him and Saul get to the breaking point, and finally, uh, he, he's gone. He leaves. And then, then we have kind of the Robin Hood period of David's life where he's running around with his, uh, with his mighty men, with this group of mercenaries and, uh, and doing various acts and deeds before eventually he becomes king. So this, this is a very important hinge chapter in the life of, of David. As, as, um, as you said, the, uh, David has been anointed king, but it hasn't seemed to do any good. Um, it, it reminds me of, say, Jacob. Uh, Jacob received the promise, yes, fraudulently, but he received the promise from Isaac, his father. And then what's the next thing that happens? He gets kicked out, kicked out of the house. 
And that pattern we're seeing again here. David is anointed as king, and you expect it to just be one grand victory procession. And in some ways it is. He is a victorious man in defeating Goliath and leading Israel's armies, but he has the king for an enemy. And, and Saul will not let up while he's in his service. And then after chapter 20, he will not let up after David leaves, leaves his service. So we've, we're, we're at a very important moment in, in the life of, da of David. Well, let's get into that moment then. I'm going to start with verse 1 of chapter 20 from the English Standard Version. And we'll read a little ways and then we'll take a pause and talk about what we've read. Here we go. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt and, and what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes, and he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says, Good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for if you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you, but if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field. And taking a pause there at the end of verse 11 uh, take us through what's going on here. There's quite a bit of information here, uh, but essentially it seems like David's saying, your dad wants to kill me, and Jonathan is a little surprised by this, saying, no, no, if dad wanted to kill you, I he would have told me. Uh, <laughs> what are we to make of this, brother? Yeah, Jonathan seems a little bit naive, doesn't he? <laughs> uh, this uh, thing, exactly. things have been things have been trending in this direction uh, for quite a while. But yeah, you, you have to understand, and and certainly I think uh, whether we've ever been, I certainly, hopefully, most of us have never been in quite the same sort of situation. But uh, when you're between two people you love, uh, Jonathan is trying to uh, hold it together, trying to keep the peace. He's trying to be an obedient son fourth commandment thing, honor your father and your mother, okay? But he's also trying to be a dear friend. And as he's going to emphasize later on in the text, Jonathan understands the word of the Lord. He understands that David has been anointed king and that uh, he, he, he's not going to mess with that. Even if his father uh, doesn't quite seem to get it, uh, he's not going to mess with that. So he has those kind of dueling loyalties uh, that are they're putting him in turmoil. So, so we, we should have a little bit of sympathy for, for Jonathan. But see, if he seems to be straddling the fence, well, we can understand in a human sense uh, why he would be in, in such turmoil. But again, uh, he, he does seem he does seem a bit naive. And, and David is very adamant. Things are coming to a head here, you know, and and the violence is it, it's either going to be I'm going to be killed or I got to get out of here. He's, he's getting, he's getting very close to that point that this, uh, this is not going to end well uh, for myself. And David has a good plan. It really is a good plan. You, you sound out, sound out. And really the plan is for the benefit of Jonathan. Um, I think, I think David has a pretty clear sense that he's going to have to get out of there. Um, unless, unless Jonathan finds out something quite, quite, different and strange. Um, he, I think he knows that he's going to have to, he's going to have to flee, but this is really for Jonathan's benefits. So Jonathan, 
uh, he sounds out his father. He's going to be convinced that his father hates David, wants David dead, and then he's going to have to say, "You need to get out of here. You need to get out of here, David." So, so again, yeah, it's a little bit for David's benefit because David wants to, um, you know, uh, have this kind of final decision out. But uh, I think a lot of it is for Jonathan himself, so that Jonathan will have no more doubt of what's going on here. Well, I, I like that, that you're bringing that out for Jonathan's benefit. Whether he has this naivete or whether, like you say, he's he's straddling the fence or a little bit of both, uh, yeah, I, I really can appreciate how it is to be caught between loyalties. And plus, when you love someone, especially if it's your father or your mother or something like that, it's hard for you to also see them as having done wrong or doing wrong or have the capability of doing things that are wrong. You always try to think the best of them. I, but as I look at this, though, I also think, well, David says to Jonathan that if I'm going to go away, and if, if he misses me, then tell him that I'm going off to do this X, Y, and Z in Bethlehem, right? I'm going to go make a sacrifice for all the clan. Um, is David lying there? And, and if so, not that that's the only sin that David's ever done, of course, but, but is this a justifiable lie, or, or, or is this just sin upon sin? I don't know. How do we reconcile the fact that skipping this engagement and and then perhaps lying about it isn't exactly what you would expect out of the one who is the man after God's own heart. Well, and and sure, as, as you mentioned, uh, the Bible does not present to us any cardboard saints. Um, they, they, these guys are, are real living uh, flesh and blood human beings and with all the faults and foibles that go along. So, I mean, it, it was David deceiving Saul here. Well, yes, he was. Was it for the best? Well, yeah. Does that excuse a lie? Well, I, I'm not sure that we would, <laughs> in Christian morality, we, we would say that it, that, that it does. Uh, but the, the nice thing about the scriptures is that that they don't try and give us these saints uh, that, that they're all, the only one who's perfect is Jesus. Uh, David's not going to reach to it. Uh, the patriarchs aren't going to reach to it. Jonathan's not going to reach to it. Uh, and certainly Saul didn't. And so, you know, it was David deceiving in doing this? Yeah, yeah, he was. He, he, he thought he was doing it for the best. Um, but uh, yeah, it was, it, was a, it was a deceptive act. And, um, you know, he's, he's fighting, fighting uh, sin with sin. But the Lord works through that. You know, the word that we, we never excuse the sin. But I, men I mentioned before uh, Jacob's deception of his father. Uh, was that sinful? Well, of course it was. Of course it was. God used it, though, because that the promise was meant to go to Jacob. And Isaac, his father, was actually sinning by wanting to give it to Esau. So uh, in, that, in that whole mess of an account there, uh, you've got sin on, uh, sin on all sides, and the Lord is working his own will through it. So here, is, is, is David deceiving? Yes. Is the Lord working through it? Yes, because the Lord wants to keep the line of David going. He wants to keep David going. And uh, so he works despite and even through our follies. That does not mean that God endorses it. It does not mean that God is the author of, of, of a sinful act, but it does mean that he does work despite us and through and he does it through all of us every single day. I like that term you use, cardboard saint, as if everybody's just one-dimensional, and that's so true. So, sometimes what I'll say is we have, to, we have to shake the gold off the icons, you know, so that oh, we can yeah. see these people as, as real people with real struggles and uh, real foibles, as you said, and I think that's definitely in play here, too. Um, another thing I think people might be curious about is verse 8, where he says, Deal kindly with your servant, for you have you have brought your servant into a covenant of Yahweh with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? So it, it appears here that David's proposing sort of an alternative to this plan. Basically, if, if, if you know, or maybe you're holding back that I do deserve death in some way, um, I would rather you take my life than your father. Um, I don't know. What what do you think here? Am, am yeah. I reading something into it that's not there, or, or no, how do you I, understand I think, that? I, 
Yeah, I, I think I think that is correct. Uh, Dave, David is asserting his innocence here. Now, he's not asserting that he's sinless, but he is asserting that I haven't done anything against Saul to deserve death. And if I have, I mean, if there's something that I'm overlooking or or if I am really wicked and I'm, I'm, I've been papering it over here and I've been trying to undermine the king or whatever... Uh, and I and I'm a traitor. Well, then, Jonathan, you as the the prince of Israel, uh, you take justice. You you do your your office. Uh, but you know, Jonathan, that I have not. You know, Jonathan, that I've been a servant of your father, and that even though I've been anointed as as the next king, I have not taken that by force. Uh, and indeed, you know, you remember to the very end of Saul's life. He does not take that by force. He spares Saul's life on a number of occasions. Uh, in another act that we may consider perhaps morally dubious, uh, the the man who kills Saul comes back expecting a reward from David, and David strikes him down. Um, so he, David is very, very conscious of not raising his hand against the Lord's king. He knows that the Lord will take care of it. And will get him in position, and uh, his concern is essentially to stay alive uh, until that until that time comes. Well, and again, I don't like to jump to the New Testament or jump to Jesus too soon before it's necessary, but we actually see that same behavior in a small way from Christ Himself. You know, he he was working according to timing, and there were plenty of opportunities where, had he let the crowds have their way with him. He would have been killed, but you know we think of them taking him to in in uh, what was that Nazareth, where they take him to the brow of the cliff and they're going to throw him off, and he he kind of passes through them. He escapes their hands a couple of times. Um, he's sort it's almost like, and I don't want to uh, simplify it, but it's almost like he's just trying to stay alive until the point at which the time appointed has come. Yeah, the the appointed hour is an incredibly important uh, theme in the Gospels, and that. Jesus is going to wait until that time, until the proper time has come. And if people, he's going to, you know, again, remain alive until that proper time comes. And uh, yeah, it, it is echoed here by David that, that the proper time is coming, not necessarily for David's death yet, but uh, right. for his ascension onto, onto the throne, which is what the cross is anyway. The cross is an ascension up to the throne. Uh, it will come in God's own timing. And the job of David, the job, the, the task given to the Christ is to be faithful until that time. Um, we haven't talked about it since chapter 18, but this covenant that they entered into with one another, uh, could you just, just as we head into the break here, could you remind the listeners a little bit about what that, what exactly that is from 1 Samuel at the very beginning of chapter 18? Yeah, I'll just read the verses real quick. Then Jonathan made Sounds a covenant good. with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. Uh, so so Jonathan exchanges, well, not really an exchange. He gives to him uh, his very weapons as a sign of this covenant. So a covenant is always an agreement. And uh, the, when, when it comes to God, there are agreements that God has with his people that are bilateral, where God pledges something and his people pledge something. And then there are those that are unilateral, where God simply pledges something and the and the people don't uh, uh, the people don't pledge anything at all. So it, when it's between two people, it's often a bilateral covenant. So uh, David and Jonathan pledge to one another. They pledge to one another that they are going to um, I essentially be knitted together as, as friends, that they, they will seek the good of one another. And uh, we, we'll see here later in the chapter that maybe a little bit of what David promises. Uh, what Jonathan promises is to protect David. Um, and you see that in the giving of his armor and his, and his, and his war accoutrements. But uh, later on in this chapter, we're going to see what, what David pledges to Jonathan. Well, we will certainly get to that in just a few minutes, but right now I think we're going to have to take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere when we come back. Pastor Mirandi and I will keep on going through 1 Samuel chapter 20. We'll see you on the other side.
These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Christopher Morandi, pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Hastings, Iowa, and St. Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland, Iowa. Friends, thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. Remember, if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can always direct them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can connect with me also on Facebook. You can ask anything you want, or you just want to say hi, do that. Remember also to share the program with your friends. Thy Strong Word airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org or on the KFUO app. If you use a podcasting service, you can subscribe to the show as a podcast, or you can also just listen to it on your smart speaker. That's a neat way. Just ask it to tune to KFUO Radio. Again, thank you for listening. Now, back to the text. Pastor Morandi, all right, before the break, we were just kind of getting the preliminaries out of the way, but we have quite a bit in this section to go through, so I think I'm just going to dive right back into the text, and we're going to read through verse 23 and just see what happens next. Here we go. And Jonathan said to David, Yahweh, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David... Shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, Yahweh do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May Yahweh be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of Yahweh that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May Yahweh take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon, and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand, and remain beside the stone heap, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them, then you are to come, for as Yahweh lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for Yahweh has sent you away. And as ha for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, Yahweh is between me and you forever. Okay, a couple things stand out to me already just reading through this. The first of which, and I know this is a very small point and really unimportant, but i got to bring it up. It just feels awkward in the English for Jonathan to be using the third person here, speaking of himself and David and the repetition of their names. Is this just sort of an element of the translation from Hebrew, or is there is there something significant to this? Well, it, it's it's formal language here because that Jonathan is making a is reaffirming the covenant. We talked about the covenant before uh, before the break, and so it, it's very formal language uh, where Jonathan is talking about himself and his house. You notice how he 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 kind of puts the. Uh, himself to the side and and is almost maybe not completely but is almost anticipating that he's not going to survive uh to see david crowned but that david would would be uh uh would would be well disposed towards his family so i so i think i think the third person really is not necessarily a feature of the hebrew language but is but is a feature of the formal covenant language that Jonathan is making with David, the, the promises that they are making one to the other. 
That makes sense. And those promises are based on, I guess, the covenant they've already made, but it's founded, or at least we, we see here, that it's founded on their great love for one another. We talked about this when we talked about chapter 18, but I guess it's worth revisiting if people missed that discussion. Um, the, the love that Jonathan and David had for one another, certainly platonic, we know that that's used by the enemies of the faith today to say that they had some sort of homosexual relationship, but, but I, I think that's a that's certainly a, a red herring because we miss the point when we focus too much on that. I, I think it's important, though, that we illustrate the great connection that these people had, that these two men had, uh, and, and how it's certainly reasonable that people will have close relationships with one another, regardless of, of you know, the fact that there's two men and it's unmanly to say that you love each other. You know what I'm saying. How might you encourage people in understanding their relationship? Perhaps one of the great tragedies of of the red herring you mentioned, the 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 popularization of, of homosexual relationships, is that men are no longer allowed, <laughs> so to speak, uh, to be to have this kind of strong friendship towards one another. And I think uh, men need that. Women need strong friendships with one another as well. Um, so it's it, it's an unfortunate thing. It's a tragic thing that you can't see two men who can say can be knit together in and even the word used here is love and and automatically our culture thinks of of sexuality and that says nothing to do with it here. This is this is two men who are knitted together in the deepest um, deepest friendship. And and we should we should celebrate that we we should rejoice in that we should encourage people to have deep meaningful friendships with one another. Um, and uh, David and Jonathan, their great love for one another extends then beyond them to the generations that that come out after, and it's simply a great example for us of of men. And like I said before, the you know even women need that relationship with with other women. Uh, friendship is important. It's a big deal. We, we are way too isolated in our world today. And uh, so, so, to, so to extol the, the value of friendship, I mean, we can't say enough about that in the church. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And David's faithfulness is on display, not just here, but even in the future. After we finish 1 Samuel, we're going to go right into 2 Samuel. It's going to be still quite a bit of many, many, many weeks away. But when we do, we're going to find that he upholds what he says here in verse 15, or what is said here by Jonathan, actually, in verse 15, Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when Yahweh cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So pointing forward, we see that David honors this even after Jonathan's death. He doesn't kill every descendant of Saul. Uh, and uh, again, that comes to pass, which, again, I guess we don't know in the moment, in the, in the current context, but I guess now having the privilege of living on this side of the history, we see that David is faithful to this covenant that they make together. Yeah, and jo- Jonathan understand, I this in a sense is a little bit gloomy for Jonathan because in making this promise he says the Lord the Lord show vengeance uh how does it go uh when the Lord cuts off the enemies of David from the face of the earth may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies well if things go the way that David thinks they're going to go when Jonathan does his little investigation tomorrow um the enemies of David are going to be his own his own family and so, so Jonathan is, is realizing, is understanding the gravity of this. And so this is an incredibly solemn promise. And it's essentially, I'm not sure that I'm going to make it out of this alive, but be faithful to my family. And, and as you said, looking back on the history, David keeps that promise. Um, he, he, he does show mercy to the son of Jonathan. So speaking of the plan, when verses 18 and following, we lay out the plan. One of the things I have historically thought, even when I was a kid, having this story read to me or when I read it growing up, this plan seems convoluted. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and who am I to say that it's a good or a bad plan? It's the one they came up with. 
But the whole, you know, I'll shoot it here and I'll say a certain word. Um, but I guess uh, it is what it is, as they often say around here. I, I don't know. Is the plan convoluted? <laughs> I I guess I, I find it uh, kind of funny that uh, Jonathan as we'll see in a little bit, Jonathan actually does the plan and then David gets up and runs over to him and they, and they talk. So it's kind of like, what was the point of shooting the arrows in the first place? Um, I, I mean, there's a lot, there's symbolism here, of course, you know, that if the arrows are short of the mark and then, then just pick them up and come on back into the house. But if, if it's beyond then run. Um, And so, yeah, I, again, the Lord doesn't give us plastic, uh, cardboard cutout saints um i if if the plan i i don't think we're uh uh you know uh, treading on god's word to say that that jonathan uh the man um maybe had a little bit of an interesting plan here i mean it makes good i mean it certainly is dramatic um but it's uh it, it is uh, he he uh it, again, David gets up from the rock heap and runs over, and they talk. So, um, <laughs> but but the, the but the symbolism is there. I mean, it's this: it, you, sure. I shoot the arrows, and you should fly, and um, and that is eventually what what ends up happening. Well, I tell you what, let's look at then verses twenty four, and you know what? Oh, it's quite a bit, but I think I'm just going to go through the rest of the text, and then we'll 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 head back if we need to. So twenty four through the end of the chapter, which is verse 42. Here we go. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the king's table." Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Th that's the end of verse 34. I know I said I was going to read to the end, but I think I have to stop because uh, a couple of things just jump out at me that I don't want to forget. Uh, so we have what, hap what David thinks is going to happen happens. And I love how we're given insight by the Holy Spirit, whoever wrote for Samuel, to tell us that the king just figured the first day maybe he was ceremonially unclean and he couldn't couldn't come, but the second day he's mad. Um, does Jonathan, as the son of the king, it almost sounds like he has some sort of position that David could have come to him and asked for an excuse. Uh, does Jonathan have authority in the kingdom of, of Israel at this point? Well, I mean, he he's a prince of Israel, and uh, you know, I I'm no expert in the uh, you know the kingly practices in in sure. God's uh, God's chosen people, but it reminds me a little bit of the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother. Uh, one of his responsibilities, and again, this is not necessarily explicitly in the text. It's kind of a cultural thing that we learn from from study of of the ancient Near East. But certainly in that case, when the when there's a party going on in the house, the older brother should have come in and should have run the party. That's his job, so that dad can you know essentially hobnob with the with the bigwigs and and be the uh, be the gregarious, uh, generous one. Uh, that uh, the son should be the one attending to those matters. So I wonder if it, maybe it's analogous here, where Jonathan 
um, is a, in a sense as prince of the kingdom is kind of the master of ceremonies. Um, and, and so if you're, if you've got an excuse for not being there, you better talk to Jonathan. Um, probably, uh, Jonathan's a little bit easier to talk to than the king anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, and he gets mad against Jonathan, right? Verse 30, when he's told that, I mean, I think his anger, we know just from, I guess, logic that his, his anger is really against David, but now it's directed at Jonathan because of this. But I have to wonder, what did Ahidnoam do, right? That's Jonathan's mom. <laughs> so, yeah. you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, in, in, in deference to the FCC here, is this the Hebrew way of saying SOB? I mean, you perverse, I, yeah, I, rebellious yeah. woman. Yep, yep. I, I don't know that it necessarily is saying a, a whole lot about Ahidnoam. Um, though, you know, I, 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 I noticed in the Lutheran study Bible, it said, well, maybe there could be some strife in Saul's household. I, I suppose that's possible, but I, I think, I think yeah, it's I think really meant to be an insult directed, uh, directed at Jonathan. And how, how do you, how do you insult a man, uh, even today, uh, very deeply while well, you go after his mother? And so that's, that's what they, Saul is speaking in his hot, hot anger here and really insulting, uh, Jonathan. That's why he, he comes up with such with such anger and and Saul's Saul's point is that Jonathan you are undermining yourself because of course even though uh right. Saul knows that David's been anointed as the next king he wants his own line to be established uh, and so he wants Jonathan to be on the throne and he says you are not looking out for your for number one and Jonathan of course isn't Jonathan is looking out for the Lord's anointed. Uh, because of the covenant that he's made with him. Jonathan has given up uh, any of his own pretensions to uh, uh, to the authority of the kingdom uh, in order to pledge allegiance and fealty to the to the true king, the one who's been anointed. That verse 31 that you're speaking of absolutely stands out as an example of Saul's I just just his disobedience from the Lord, because as yeah. you clearly pointed out, it's not his to give. He, he the kingship isn't his to pass on, and so I think it also reveals that somehow Saul and his thinking has like, well, once I kill David, obviously they're just going to want my line to continue. Yeah, and and this is yeah. so contrary to God's will, and and it really gives us a a distinction. In fact, I think in some ways it tells us that. If for whatever reason Jonathan would have been next in line for king, if it, the kingship had not already been given to David, it sounds like Jonathan would have made a pretty good king. Yeah, yeah, he he seems he seems to be a pretty pretty upright, a very very much the opposite of his father, uh, faithful to the Lord right. and uh, and a good upright man. And I, yeah, I think you're exactly right. I've never really pondered that before, but you're right. I think I think he would have made uh, quite a good king. It, I mean, it, this is this is illustrating. Uh, a pattern you see again and again in the scriptures that David has been given the promised line, the messianic line has been handed over to David uh, with the kingship. And the uh, I, every time that the promised line has been threatened in the Old Testament, God acts. And here again, the promised line is threatened. The one who bears the, mess the messianic seed in his loins is being threatened with death. And Jonathan, one of the most unlikely of characters, Jonathan, the son of the king who is threatening that messianic line, is the one who saves it. Um, and uh, uh, he joins a number of other folks throughout the Old Testament that are not necessarily in the messianic line, but act to save it. People like Joseph, uh, people like Queen Esther, uh, those who have who have the opportunity to to save the promised line and they and they take action in faithfulness to God. Well, finishing up, uh, you know, at the towards the end of this, verse 33, it says, but Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him when, you know, when Jonathan's asking him, what's this guy done? And I have to laugh a little bit. Maybe it's just the way I read it. So he hurls his spear at him and then he goes, so Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David <laughs> to death. Yeah, it's like, what clued you in? But but if we if we make Jonathan a little bit naive, if we understand him to be a little bit naive, then I, I don't know. Maybe this is sort of a, 
Um, may, maybe I'm, I'm surprised that it's not a colloquialism today, like where we say, well, the spear hit the wall. I realized that things were going bad. <laughs> It'd make for a great turn of phrase because, yes, um, yeah, at that point, there's no denying it. Yeah. Well, you, you and I can start, can try and popularize that, get that, get I that I like going. that. I think I'm going to, <laughs> well, I'm going to read um, the rest as I promised earlier. Oh, no, go ahead. Yeah. I, I was just, I was just going to say, maybe, maybe to be charitable to Jonathan, I, you know, again, we had that, we talked about that conflict going on within him. His father got angry when he mentioned it. Okay. And, and said he deserves to die. Okay. Well, now the, finally, the spear throne finally completely wakes up Jonathan. And now he fully knows that his father is not just, not just spouting off here. It, he is deadly serious. Right. It's not just his running his mouth. You're right. The, the, he wants, he's going to take action. And so Jonathan is going to go and follow through with the plan. This is going to be verses, finally, 35 through 42. Here we go. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy didn't know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of Yahweh, saying, Yahweh shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the convolution of the plan, and, you know, it, it, it really is actually a pretty clever plan, because... He's saying to the boy things that he's really saying to David. Uh, run, you know, go fast, quick, hurry. Uh, I, I wonder, and, and I wonder if, uh, and I actually don't wonder that much. I think that when David just sort of throws out the plan, the boy's gone. This is uh, sort of an excited utterance, what he's saying. It, it doesn't, it's, it's basically all the emotions are running into him, recognizing what's going on, and he doesn't want to not say goodbye. And I think that's reasonable. Yeah, I, I, I came to that exact same conclusion as I, as I, as I was pondering this, that, that, okay, the plan was the plan, but when it actually took place, uh, David and Jonathan, for that matter, are so overcome by emotion that they cannot simply... I mean, David, according to the plan, when the arrow went beyond him, go go run quickly, do not stay, David should have turned around and run. But he he's willing, for the sake of their friendship, their great friendship, to take just a moment, just a few moments, and weep with Jonathan and then run. We have just a few minutes left in the program, but I want to give those to you. Um, just anything else you want to sum up? I know there's so much in this text, but anything that the listeners should definitely take home from what we've covered today? Well, it's interesting. There's another affirmation of this of this covenant. The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And that's uh, um, from Jonathan. In fact, I, David doesn't say a ton in this text. It's really, it's really Jonathan who who comes up with the plan, who speaks the words of the covenant, that sort of thing. The Lord be between me and you, and that's that reminds me of, of how we should all look at each other. If we're talking, you know, uh, I, we've gone over a lot of themes here, the messianic themes that are here, but but friendship, and I, I'm reminded of of Saint Patrick's breastplate, right? Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ beside me. I can't remember all the other directions, but Christ, Christ essentially surrounding me, and and when Christ surrounds me, then anytime I look at my neighbor, I see Christ. The Lord be shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And and if and if we look at our neighbor and see Christ. That's going to have a profound, profound influence on how we treat our neighbor. 
and uh, what we say to them, how what we do to them. So it, it, Jonathan and David placed the Lord between them so that when they looked at each other, they saw they saw the Lord and God that they both worshipped. And uh, that is a good way for us to think through, both with our nearest and dearest friends, but also any of God's uh uh, God's creatures, God's human beings, the, the crown of His creation that He has that He has made, uh, to look at them and see and see Him. Well, that sounds good to me, and I appreciate you being on the show today, folks. I'd like to thank this morning my guest, the Reverend Christopher Marondi, uh, Marondi, pardon me, pastor of Saint John Lutheran Church in Hastings, Iowa, and Saint Paul Lutheran Church in Oakland, Iowa. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the program. You're very, very welcome. It's been a joy. All right, folks, tomorrow we're going to end our week with chapter 21. David is still on the run from King Saul, so he goes to the town of Nob or Nob to seek food and supplies from the priest. David tells him that he's on a secret mission for the king, but that just leads to suspicion and mistrust. And as a result, David flees to the city of Gath, one of Saul's enemies. But even that soon becomes a liability, and he narrowly escapes by pretending to be insane. Whoa, lots of crazy themes and things going on, but all of them are from our Lord for our edification. So join us tomorrow for chapter 21. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.